Colossians chapter 1. Every once in a while, I like to kind of test people and see if they're paying attention on Sunday morning. And so last week, I started with saying that we were going to look at seven marks of a minister, and I only gave you four. A handful of you actually came and told me, hey, where were the other three? But the rest of you, I just have to wonder, were you paying attention? Yeah, you just think I'm getting old and forgetful, right? Yeah. Let me let me remind you just really quickly of those four from last week. Um, as I ended up having to break this up because it was just too much for a 40-minute sermon. So um, the first mark was the minister's status. And if you notice, because I rarely use alliteration, um, these, for the most part, are alliterated, which typically should always tell you someone smarter than me alliterated them, and I just borrowed them. Um, But the first mark of the minister was his status, and that is of a servant. And we talked about how that word that's used there is literally what we would call a waiter nowadays. And so in in much the same way, the minister of God is the waiter. He's bringing the spiritual food to the table week in and week out. The second was that a minister is suffering. And we, we talked about how Paul, throughout his experience, was a suffering servant, much in the same way that Jesus was a suffering servant, our ultimate example. And so a true minister, if he's truly ministering, will be also suffering. The third mark of a faithful minister is that he is a steward. In other words, he realizes he doesn't own a group of people. He doesn't own a building. He is merely the steward of the church for the period of time that Jesus sees fit to allow him to be there. The fourth mark of a minister is his subject. And we talked about that as preaching the word, but ultimately it's preaching Christ from the word. That the ultimate subject of every true minister of God should be Christ. And if it's anything else, then he's missing the message. It's, his subject is, is off, and you need to be wary of that. And so I want to finish this morning by looking at the other four marks of the minister, the faithful minister, and then I want to end by giving you four points of application of why it is so important for you to be under the faithful preaching of the word by a faithful minister. What, in other words, what does it do for you, if you find yourself sitting under a faithful minister. So the fifth mark we're going to look at, going from the subject of preaching Christ from the word of God, is his strategy. And if you look at verse 28 in Colossians chapter 1, Paul carries on with a new sentence in verse 28, but it's really the same thought that he's been carrying through from the beginning. And here he says, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ. Outside of scripture, the word proclaim was used by a messenger who would announce the the games or some kind of upcoming event that would be happening in this area. So they would send a messenger ahead to say, hey, this is going to happen. And the messenger's job was to just take an important message and just make it known publicly. In other words, this was a declaration of truth. And, And the role of the messenger was to deliver the message regardless of the outcome, right? 
For him to be a faithful messenger, it didn't rely on a certain outcome. It just relied on him faithfully proclaiming the message to whoever he was being sent to. And so it goes for a gospel messenger. This, this is the strategy of a minister. He, he is a messenger sent on behalf of God just to tell people about Jesus. That, that's what he should be doing. And this proclamation is, is active and ongoing, right? It's not like I come to the church and say, okay, this is my first Sunday. Let me proclaim to you the message of Jesus. Now that we got that out of the way, let me tell you 10 ways to have a better life. Let me tell you 10 ways to have a better marriage, right? Every week is an ongoing proclamation of Christ. Now, does Christ want you to have a better marriage? Absolutely. But the way you have a better marriage is putting Christ at the center of your marriage. The way you have a better life is putting Christ at the center of your life. And we are forgetful people. We need to be reminded of the truth regularly. And God, being a good God who loves us, he knew that about us. And and so he set up this system of at least once a week, if not multiple times a week, of being reminded and hearing the truth of Christ proclaimed by a faithful gospel minister. And again, notice the subject is Christ. (laughs) We proclaim him, Paul says. And the minister is constantly to preach Christ to the people, showing his, his person, his works, his glory, his majesty. But the reality is, and, and I hear this a lot, is our culture just gets tired of hearing about Jesus. Can't, can't you preach on something else? I, I already, I've already heard about that. Can, isn't there something else you can talk about? Sure, there, there's lots of things we could talk about, but then I wouldn't be a faithful gospel minister if I did that. It, it all has to come back to Christ and proclaiming him from the pulpit. So many people have heard about Jesus preached for years. And they're, they're honestly, I get it. Sometimes they're put off by unfaithful preaching and hypocritical preachers. In other words, the, the preacher gets up and says one thing on Sunday and then Monday is doing something completely different. But that still doesn't change a minister's mission. J- just because some of the messengers have been unfaithful it doesn't mean that we then have to modify or change our strategy because of their unfaithfulness. We are just to keep carrying on preaching Christ no matter what. And failure to do so is failure. And unfortunately, many of the biggest pulpits in America have become centers of what many have called moralistic therapeutic deism. It's all about just a form of moralism. They, they claim to be Christians and, and, and Christianity as their center, but their central message is not the gospel. The gospel, in fact, is rarely preached. Instead, what you hear from these sermons is be a better person. That, that's, that's the message, just be better. That's moralism, right? And then if you... If you will be better, if you will do better, then guess what? You will feel better. 
And that's the opposite message of the Bible. That's the opposite message of the gospel. The gospel says we all fall short. There's none of us that can be better. There's only condemnation there. And so we have a problem. And it does no good to just tell people, try a little harder. Work a little harder. If you do, you'll feel good about yourself. You don't need to believe more in yourself this morning. You need to believe more in Jesus this morning. You need to believe that Jesus is the only answer to every problem you have in your life this morning. Thankfully for you and for me, Jesus came to die for bad people. Not morally good people, but sinners separated from God because of their sin. That's who Jesus came to die for. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And the first step in accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ is acknowledging I am sick. My heart is diseased and damaged and broken and there's no amount of doing better that's going to fix that. He died on the cross to pay the full penalty. For our sickness, for our diseased heart, our our sin. And he rose again as our justification. That means that we can be made right with God based not on our goodness, but on his goodness alone. And that's why our only hope, that's why the minister's only hope and only remedy is Christ and him glorified. That's why we preach Christ regularly. And so we can talk now about the goal of a true minister, which is behind all that he does. So his strategy is proclaiming Christ. The sixth mark of a true minister is a minister's mission. So from his strategy to his mission, go again to verse 28. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here's where I see Paul declaring what his mission is, what every minister's mission should be. Paul has a target he's trying to hit in this verse. And that target involves a presentation. A a presentation, and, and that should ring some bells, if you were here last week, go back to verse 22 if you have your Bible, just flip back a little bit. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach here. So the cross had an objective. That, that objective was to present a group of people holy and blameless. And Paul has the same goal as Jesus here. Jesus died to reconcile us that he might present us holy and blameless to to present this redeemed people and and to himself to be made perfect. Just the the picture here is like a, a bride ready on her wedding day wearing her beautiful, white, stainless, brand new, never wore before dress, right? This is the picture of presenting the bride of Christ to Jesus. 
And that's what the minister should be on mission doing on the Lord's behalf. He's sharing in that same mission that Jesus initiated and started. Which is the same target, presenting the the people that he has been called to steward to God, holy and blameless and perfect. Now, the reality is, it's not like we have the power to make people holy. But that's why we're preaching Christ. (laughs) After all, he's the one that has the power to make you holy. I don't. Jamie doesn't. But Jesus does. The minister must share this aim of presenting the church holy, complete. That's the, the, miss, the mission, presenting the people to God. The minister has the mission of ministering the gospel, the truth of Christ to the people of God until they are fully built up. And he keeps on doing this over and over and over again. But if a minister loses sight of that goal, or if that goal changes, you're going to have problems. Right? If the goal becomes filling a room, if the goal becomes a certain amount of salvations or baptism numbers, then you're going to start making compromises you're going to start doing different things to fill that up. And maybe you, you focus more on entertaining people so you can draw a crowd than preaching Christ. Then, then having that group of people being matured in Christ so that you can present them wholly to God. Sometimes I think about that as, as, as a pastor and going through the whole process of planting a church and really thinking about Everything of why we do every little thing we do. See, I, we have a huge benefit, I think, in that we got a chance to think through all those things. Many pastors come into systems that are just already there. And the pastor goes, why do we do this? I don't know. We've always done it this way. Right? But we have, we have tried to be very intentional as we develop everything that we have done and really think through what is the ultimate goal? What are we trying to do? And, and I shudder to think about some of the friends of mine that, that have churches that are much larger and some much smaller, but, but they're responsible for that group of people standing before the Lord, maturing Christ. And I don't, I don't know how you do that with thousands of people. That, that responsibility just shakes me a little bit. I don't, I don't know about you just thinking about that, but like you're, I've often said, I would rather bring 50 mature people across the line presented to God than 500 people and, and maybe 10% of it make it across the line. That would break my heart. The, the, the minister is to be focused on presenting the people that God has entrusted and stewarded to him, to God, holy, mature, and complete. And like we talked about last week, that, that is an ongoing process. Feeding the sheep, you don't feed them once and go, okay, they're good, they're done. No, you, you have to keep feeding them. So we can't lose sight of that goal. That's 
the Lord's purpose for the church. If we lose sight of it, we're going to have disastrous results. If the minister starts looking at the Bible more like helpful, like a helpful aid or looking, looking at all these moral stories and let me teach you some morality from this, he's going to lose his focus and the mission is going to change. And I hope you can see this morning why that is so dangerous. Why the minister cannot lose sight of the goal of presenting a people to the Lord, complete and built up in Christ. And for the minister of the gospel, it is a lot of work. It's extensive. (laughs) And every time someone new enters the church, it starts all over again. Just continually restarts this goal and there's a new person who's now at the ground level and now you have to start all over again working with them, helping them, maturing them and building them up to that same goal of presenting them complete in Christ. It just keeps going. It's never ending. Thankfully though, the minister is given supernatural strength, Paul says, for the task. And this brings us to the final mark of a true minister this morning. Number seven is the minister's strength. The minister's strength. And again, Paul addresses this in verse 29, for he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul confirms his purpose here is to present every purpose or every person complete in Christ. There's no doubt about that purpose. But to achieve that goal, what is it going to take? Well, to put it plainly, Paul says a lot of work. I toil or I labor. The Greek word here refers to manual work. This is a form of intensified labor. Right? This this isn't just holding the sign out on the, you know, DOT, wait, waiting for the people to come by. Oh, let me, let me turn this and then listen to my iPod and then do, 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 and then turn it. And then, you know, th- this, is, this is work. This is the guy digging the ditch. That's the picture he's trying to, to, to paint here. This, this word literally means to work to the point of fatigue. And this is the word that Paul uses as he applies it to his ministry. The labor of teaching and preaching and shepherding and counseling and admonishing, that all adds up. And not to mention the persecution that Paul was under and the affliction that he was constantly suffering. And you add on top of that all the daily pressures of concern for the church and you have labor, you have a hard work. Bearing the burdens of yourself can be tiresome, right? Just you bearing the burden for you, that's that's wearisome. But now imagine if your job is to bear the burdens of others as well. See, this is the kind of intensive labor that Paul is talking about. He's not just bearing his own burdens, which he is, but he's also bearing the burdens for all these other Christians that God has called him to steward. The Lord needs workers in the field and he calls ministers who devote themselves to this work. And a true minister must see it as labor. 
your minister shouldn't be talking about this is too hard. (laughs) I didn't think this was going to be hard. Sometimes people joke about pastors, and and I hear it all the time. You know, oh, you just play golf all week and then come out and talk for 45 minutes, right? You couldn't get a real job in the world, so you you decided to become a pastor, right? If that's the case, they're not doing it right. Because it's work. It's a heavy weight carrying the burdens and and praying for the people that God has given you. You you wake up in the morning with a list of people you're praying for and you go to bed at night with a new list of people you're praying for because of the things you heard that day. It's a heavy weight that a faithful minister carries. But it's a labor of love. It is labor. But it's a labor of love for sure. And he has to be passionate for this labor. Otherwise, he's going to burn out. And and we've seen that so many times. So it's important that he has a view that the ministry is hard work. Paul labors. Paul strives. But there's a key consideration here. And with all this in mind, the minister must view the ministry as a labor, but not labor according to his flesh, not according to his strength. He must not labor and strive simply according to his own power, but rather he must work by the Lord's power and for the Lord's glory. And it's what Paul rounds out verse 29 by saying, for this I toil with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is the minister's real strength. The strength that the Lord gives through the Spirit that empowers him to work, to do the work of the ministry. The gospel minister must strive according to God's power, and this exposes the balance between sovereignty and responsibility in in sanctification, but as well as in ministry, right? We've got to work out our own salvation, Scripture says. But we also know it's God who works through us and in us. The minister should always keep in mind that his work must be guided by the Spirit and not by his own strength. This means that the minister must cultivate a strong prayer life and depend on the Lord for the results of his work. The reality is, again, the minister can't make a single person grow. I I can teach you classes all day long. I can preach to you all day long. I can give you books to read all day long. But I can't make you grow. That's not within my power. God must bring to life dead sinners. And God must cause growth by his Holy Spirit. I can create an environment that encourages that. Right, And I I should work to do that. But at the end of the day, that's all I can do. Right? I I should encourage all of the one another's in the New Testament by putting you in a room once a week with a group of people that some you know, some you don't know that well. Right? All we do in small group is create an environment where relationships and community can grow so the one another's of the New Testament can happen. Just this week I was explaining to somebody, it's, it, it's difficult 
right? When, when you are in need, if you have a group of people that you have been doing life with, and all of a sudden you have a surgery or a sickness, and now people are having to come into your house and help you and serve you, that's a whole lot easier when they know you. When they know what you like and they know what you don't like, right? So all I can do is, is create the environment of a small group, give you some general guidance, but I can't make you love each other. I can't make you grow in relationship. I can't make you be honest with one another. That's not within my power. That's also not within your small group leader's power. But that's what we're praying for. So that when inevitable suffering and trials and afflictions happen, you have a group of people that will rally around you and support you and help you and care for you. And do all of the one another's that Jesus tells us to do in the New Testament. Right? But that's not within the minister's power to make any of that stuff happen. I have to trust in God. That that God is going to do that work in in a bunch of hard-hearted people. And all I can do is plant and water, plant and water. But I, I can't make the harvest happen. The critical factor always belongs to the Lord. And because of that, he always gets the glory when it does happen. When I do hear small groups serving each other, listen, one of the things I love as a pastor is hearing about needs that have been met after the fact and I never was notified about it. They just took care of it. That nothing encourages a pastor more than that. Because it's like, oh, they're doing it. The, the, the loving one another, the caring for one another, the serving one another, all the things that Jesus is calling us to do, they did it. Right? The critical factor always belongs to Jesus. He causes the growth. And we've got to get that balance right in ministry. And when you do, it leads to such a, a blessing and peace and a contentment in the labor. The minister still has to work hard, but they don't have to do it with fear or stress or pressure because the reality is you can't control the results. So when you sit under and you put yourself under a sound minister that that has these seven marks, I want to close this morning by looking at four ways I think this helps you this morning. I I said last week, this was kind of a a message to what it, it would be a great message to go to a seminary and preach. Here's seven marks of being a good minister because here's a group of people who are going to become ministers one day. But I also think it benefits you because when you realize how important it is to be under a faithful minister regularly, then one, you need to identify what that looks like. So as you're going around looking, like, is this what the Bible is holding up as the standard? But two, practically, I think there's, there's a lot of benefits, but I just want to hone in on four that I think Paul picks up on in the beginning of chapter two. A sound minister that bears these seven marks, it, it serves as kind of like an inoculation against false teaching. This helps us from becoming spiritually 
sick before the heresy happens, right? We get the flu shot before flu season, if we do it right, <laughs> right? But because we're wanting to kind of inoculate ourselves, give, give our body a chance to build up the defenses before the heresy gets here. And that's kind of where the Colossian church is at. Epaphras is seeing something on the horizon, so he's coming to ask Paul for help before it really gets here. And so the whole letter, really, of the Colossians is a, a, a vaccination, if you will, against a certain kind of heresy where you're adding to Christ, right? And, and Paul wants this young church to get vaccinated against these false teachers. And, and this vaccine comes from the truth, fully understanding who Christ is and a, a well Rounded understanding of the word of God and God's plans and primarily God's son. And, and just like with our body, the best way to fight off the infection is to, to have good overall health, right? It's not just about a vaccine. It's, it's also about exercising and eating right. You, you have an overall approach to fighting off disease. And so it goes with the body of Christ. And so a faithful minister preaching Christ from God's word is an inoculation against false teaching. In many ways, the letter of Colossians is a a vaccine against that heresy. Look at what Paul says in verses 2, 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am present, or I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. From this passage, Paul points to four ways, in particular, a faithful minister builds your spiritual health. The first is hearts that are strengthened. Hearts that are strengthened. The second is hearts that are unified in love. Third, minds that are assured. And fourth, eyes that are focused on Christ. Just real quickly, the first is the heart that are strengthened. Look at verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face. He's writing to them that they may be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. And that becomes evident in verse 2. He struggles for them all. Verse 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, The ancient Greeks did not view the heart as the center of your feelings and emotions the way we do. Rather, that that feeling belonged to your your intestines or your bowels. No joke. They they viewed the gut as the center of your feeling and emotion. And some of you understand that. Because when your emotions get acting up, you feel it in your guts, right? So instead, the heart was seen as the center of of your personality. It's your inner man, your inner self. And and scripture uses heart in this way. It's the core of your being, your mission control center, if you will, for all of your thoughts and your will. 
And so a prayer for your heart is a prayer not just for your emotions and your feelings, but your inner person, your, your spirit, your, your will, your resolve, if you will. And so Paul is struggling on behalf of their hearts. It's a struggle for who they are on the inside. And specifically, he wants them to have strengthened hearts. He wants to see their inner selves encouraged and strengthened. So that when attacks come, they won't wither and fall. Their resolve will remain steady, right? He wants these young Christians to be strengthened in their inner selves. And he wants their desires for the Lord to be built up because of what's coming ahead. Again, Paul's looking forward to something potentially dangerous coming into the church. And so he wants them to be strengthened in their resolve. The second benefit of a faithful being under a faithful minister are hearts that are unified in love. Paul knows that the spiritual stability of these Christians is not just tied to their inner strength, but also their outer unity there there are some trees in this neighborhood if, if you go down just like a block or two over on the right hand side there you'll see a, a empty lot with some trees right next to the the road there the trees there go three blocks over in their root system you can kill these trees all day long you could, you could, I've, I've seen the county try to do it multiple times. And they always come back. Why? Because there's a unity in the tree's roots that stretches over a vast area. And if you try to annihilate one portion of it, it just comes back. And, and that's kind of the picture that Paul is, is painting here of when Christians are unified. Right? You, you, you can take out this one little group of them but when they are unified in love, they come and rebuild. <laughs> they, they come or they'll send missionaries back over and start all over again, right? Because the church is unified. The, the people of God are unified. But when you're not unified, when, when we don't defend each other, then we are vulnerable. Again, this is where heresy can run rampant in a church. When we are not unified in Christ. Thankfully, over the years, this is how the church has endured it. We, we face some great opposition. Horrific persecution. Executions of entire churches in entire regions. And yet, the gospel persists. The, the nation of China is just an amazing example of that. It's been persecuted and persecuted and persecuted, and yet the number of underground Christians just keeps growing. It's like that root system that's under the surface and you can't see it, but man, it's everywhere. Verse 2 again hits that their hearts may be encouraged, and he says next that having been knit together in love, Paul wants them to be knit together in love. Not just knit together, not just unified, but loving one another in that unity. Such unity is going to be essential for us to stand firm against any kind of persecution, any kind of heresy, any kind of attack 
that this world throws at us. And this unity in turn is dependent on love. And love is the atmosphere in which unity thrives. The the genuine Christ-like love for one another will serve the purpose of drawing believers closer together. One of the reasons that this call to unity is so important is because your spiritual growth is correlated to unity. Your spiritual growth is correlated to unity. God designed the church to be one body with many different members. Bodies are designed to grow, and all those different members come together as one. And that's how the whole body grows. And that's how each individual in turn grows. I hope you understand this morning that your spiritual growth is not a solo sport. It's not you and Jesus. If it's you and Jesus this morning, you're doing it wrong. Period. Your growth is tied to a body. Iron sharpens iron. But if you're always alone, you're always going to remain dull. God designed it that people would stick together, that they might sharpen one another. But the importance of unity goes beyond just our spiritual growth. This unity and love is also absolutely essential to spiritual stability. To to not being led astray by false teachers. The, The vast majority of times someone wanders from the faith. Think about it. They were already kind of wandering off by themselves anyway. That they were on their own, they, they, they detached themselves from any kind of small group or Bible study or any kind of accountability whatsoever, right? They're just taking some time off and just detached. And then all of a sudden, they're attacked. And they fall prey to some spiritual heresy. And they get lost. That's why I think we see several times Paul using this term for knit together to speak of the church's stability here in Ephesians. Over and over again in Ephesians, he uses the same term that he's using in Colossians. And he's using it there in the context of resisting error and false teaching in Ephesians. That we must be knitted together in love. There must be a unity and that comes from putting yourself under the faithful preaching of the word by a faithful gospel minister. The third benefit of a faithful minister is minds that are assured. Again, look in verse 2. He struggles for them that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. And then he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Let's start with that word understanding that the, the word for understanding in ancient Greek was used to speak to, uh, of two rivers that, that came together as one. And so later on, it went on to mean putting thoughts and concepts together and drawing a conclusion, uh, understanding the relationship between both. So what we're really talking about here is, is comprehension, right? He wants them to comprehend the faith. He, he really wants them to get it, to understand it. That's because such understanding comes with then assurance. 
right? If I just come up here and say, believe it because I say believe it, that's only going to get you so far. You, you might leave here and go, well, I trust Dale, so I'm going to believe it. But when a pressure comes, when a trial comes, can I really trust Dale? What if he's wrong? Sometimes people are wrong. I've been wrong before. Maybe he's wrong, right? But there's a difference. There's a difference when you come to that understanding by faith yourself. The the gospel minister presents it, puts the evidence out there, points you to the word, helps you to get there. But you sit there and go, I see those two connections. And now I have a new understanding. And it's mine because God has given it to me. Not Dale gave it to me. Not my dad gave it to me. Not my mom gave it to me. Mom and dads, keep giving it to your kids. But ultimately, it's got to be their faith. They, they're only going to go so far on your faith. Right? And, and so Paul understands that. And he wants them to have the comprehension and the assurance so, so that they can have the, the stability that comes from understanding. That, that they can have full assurance when an attack comes. No, I know this is what's right. I know Jesus is God. I know he is the sustainer and creator of this universe. I don't need something in addition to him. I just need him. He wants them to arrive not just at understanding, but he says a full assurance of understanding. There's a full assurance that understanding brings. And full assurance is where you know what you believe. Have you ever had one of those like epiphany moments and and just true understanding leads to just a settled conviction? It's like, ah, I got it. Right? That's what Paul is trying to to help them get to. It it comes from understanding. They finally get it. Sometimes this happens to you when you think about your parents. But it doesn't happen until you become a parent. Right? Right? I don't know about y'all, but I've had a lot of epiphany moments with parenting. I used to think, why did mom do that? Why did dad do that? They were horrible parents. And then I do it. And I understand I'm doing it out of love, not to be mean. And it's like, oh, maybe mom and dad actually did love me. Right? Maybe they did know what they were doing. Even though I didn't understand it at the time. Now I get it. You have to base your Christian faith on understanding. Only understanding will lead to full assurance where everything just finally clicks and you see the grand relationship of Scripture. God's Word, God's plan, it it just finally makes sense and we all need to get to that point. And when you get to that point, you have the full assurance that comes from understanding that will indeed have a treasure of riches, as Paul puts it. The faithful minister will keep depositing scripture into your hearts so that you will be rich in assurance. The fourth and final benefit of a faithful minister is eyes that are focused on Christ. Again, this strategy is preaching Christ. His message is proclaiming Christ. And so a faithful minister is going to help a church keep their eyes focused on Christ. Finishing out verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. When you dive deep into the Word, getting to know 
God and understanding God's truth, you also gain a knowledge of this mystery, which is Christ himself. And now we're talking about a real treasure. When we're talking about Christ, we're talking about a real treasure in our lives when we really know who he is and what he has done for us. And it goes on to say in verse 3, speaking of Christ, in whom all in, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. At the center point of understanding is Christ himself. It's not enough to simply know the propositions of Scripture. The goal is to not just know a doctrinal statement. You're trying to get to know a person, a Lord, a Savior. You have saving faith, not in a doctrinal statement, in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so you must come to a true knowledge of him. And Paul uses an intensified form of the word knowledge here. This is a, a real, deep, personal knowledge. I mean, your faith, after all, is in a person. You should probably get to know that person. And what the church needs most is to have our eyes fixed and focused on Christ. And Jesus is the mystery of God revealed. Paul uses this word and, and talks about this mystery back in uh, chapter 1, verse 27. The ministry speaks of truth. The, the mystery was previously unrevealed in the New Testament, but now it has been made known. It, it's no longer a hidden treasure, right? In the Old Testament... They didn't know. But now we know. It's, it's, it's a treasure that's been made open. It's been made complete, made known. It means that you could ask God questions about his will, his plans, his purposes. And all he's going to do is point to Jesus. He's already answered all those things in Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. Everything is summed up in Christ. And so Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is like a, a treasure trove of true wisdom and knowledge. You don't need to look anywhere else. You, you don't need a, a so-called guru or some kind of expert in the field. You, you definitely don't need to look at culture for the explanation. That's just the blind leading the blind. Instead, look to Christ in his word. That is where the true treasures of wisdom lie. This, this wisdom is rich truth of God's plan and purposes for those of us in the world. He, he's made them open source, if you will. He's, he's published them for everyone. It, it's for all to see the founding Christ. Those in the world have no access to them simply because they refuse to see him. But those who humble themselves to follow him, they gain access to this treasure house full of treasure. And you have the key of faith and you open it up and you, you now have the full treasure of God's wisdom and revelation. And knowledge for life. The meaning of life. The meaning for your life. 
You have it all. It's found in Christ. Stop looking in all these other places and look in the one place. The answer is this morning. So I would end by asking you, do you have eyes that are focused on the author and perfecter of your faith? Are you faithfully sitting under the regular preaching of Christ by a faithful minister? If not, find a place and get yourself under that protection. Help build up your spiritual immunity by getting vaccinated weekly with the word of God. Preached faithfully. And enjoy all of these spiritual benefits that come from doing that this morning. Let's pray. Father.